You all know him. Heck, some of you might even like him. But did you know he's a practicing Quaker? Caleb Brown is the host of a charming, adorable little show called the Cato Daily Podcast, and he joins us this week to talk about the historical and practical intersections of Quakerism and libertarianism. Welcome to Liberty Chronicles, a project of libertarianism.org. I'm Anthony Comegna. So, Caleb, this is a little odd to me, and I know that given my studies in English and American history, the Quaker tradition is certainly, at least in my view, it's a cornerstone precursor to libertarianism as we know it. If there were no Quaker church in the way that it developed and with the core ideas that it had, we would not have the libertarian movement that we do today in the way it actually historically developed. And yet, I'm fairly sure you're the only actual practicing libertarian Quaker I've ever met. And I mean, maybe there were more out there that I encountered and I, I just couldn't you know, see their inner light as it were uh, by sight alone. But I, I think at least you're my one personal connection to the, the wide world of friends. And I'm wondering how did you then first stumble upon Quakerism and what attracted you to the Friends? Uh, I guess I was in high school, uh, early college and wanted something, felt something that I wanted to have uh, a life that involved faith and service. And I just read about various religions and and frankly, I discovered uh, the Society of Friends that way. Just just through reading books like the one you have in front of you, Friends for 300 Years, and, and just thought, well, this actually comports best with how I view the world and how I view uh, what I believe to be an appropriate uh, relationship with God. Were you a practicing Christian already? No. Did you believe any of the... Christian dogma or doctrine. I, I, I mean, I, I attended church with a lot of friends in uh, high school and college, and came to it that way. But yes, okay. So you were not raised, or you know, I wasn't raised anything. You were not deep in any Christian That's tradition. Right. Okay. Now, at this point, then, to what extent would you say you're a sort of true believer Christian? This will come up again and again in this conversation, which is uh, anything you say on behalf of yourself as a Quaker almost certainly does not apply to most other Quakers. And that's part, that's part of the beauty of the thing is that, uh, you know, I wasn't even really familiar with the term antinomian until you and I talked about it. I was vaguely aware of it, but I didn't really know what it meant. But of course, Quakers do have this sort of antinomian, unmediated relationship with God. Uh, and uh, that is the primary, that is your number one relationship that you have. Yeah, it, it confused me for a little bit the, the distinctions or possible distinctions between the two. And when I had Marcus Redeker on the show to talk about Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist, uh, Lay was a Quaker and he was kicked out of all of the meetings that he attended because of his uh, rabid abolitionism. Um, and I wondered, you know, was he also an antinomian? Did he think that the only valid laws were the laws that he perceived as a result of his personal faith connection to God? And Marcus 
sort of in his explanation said that Lay had antinomian leanings, but you know Quakers were not necessarily antinomian. Uh, and in fact, Howard Brinton, the author of the book that that you mentioned here, Friends for Three Hundred Years, he he takes great pains, it seems to me, to separate the so-called anarchist antinomian Quakers from the more orderly uh, Quakers that, that predominated in the church eventually. I mean, what, where do you think you fall? Do you feel more drawn toward antinomianism or are you more of an orderly type? Uh, oh, I'm definitely not an orderly type. <laughs> but I, I think it's, you know, we have our reasons for obeying man-made laws. And most of the reasons that I have for obeying man-made laws is because it's more convenient than the alternative. But you don't necessarily feel a moral obligation. No, none. Do that. Yeah. Um, then what about more, the more dogmatic elements of Christianity? Uh, I'm wondering, do are the, the Quaker libertarians I'm likely to encounter, are they attracted to Quakerism more for its sort of social views or its implications for your personal life? Like you were maybe, you know, looking for a set of, of ideas and practices that could help you uh, flourish in life more. Um, and, and then I imagine there are Quaker libertarians out there who would be what I call the more true believer Christians who you know have a, a deep belief in the literal word of the Bible or for example, um, Benjamin Lay was obsessed with the book of Revelations. Because he was convinced that slaveholders were the minions of Satan, you know, cast down to earth in the middle of this apocalyptic war between the Archangel Michael and and Satan. Um, to what extent do you believe the the sort of deep dogma embedded in Christianity? Uh, not much. Mm -hmm. It's uh, I think for for me at least, um, I'm more of a words and red guy. You know what I mean by no, that. So no. the words in red are are the are the are the lines essentially attributed to Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. Okay, and that is uh, everything else. I figure is fine, but I don't feel a super strong uh, allegiance to it. Okay, so then uh, could you talk about how your Quakerism does mesh with your libertarianism? That's the easiest part, really. Um, because in general, libertarians don't view uh, – well, and often don't view the state as legitimate. Uh, libertarians generally view that the state has a role to play. Um, but Quakers are, are very interested in trying to reduce the use of force in our lives around the world uh, and it's – it used to be a lot more committed to things like not voting. For example, because that was an imposition that you were making on your fellow man, and uh, you know, in many ways, Quakers wish that there were things like war taxes, so that they would know what not to pay, and and, and probably um, a good percentage of them uh, would say, "Well, yeah, I'm I am willing to go to jail over this." Uh, so it's it's very easy to see that there is a, there's a moral foundation that is rooted in reducing or the absence of coercion that is should be I think among libertarians who are or are not Quakers is meshes very well with uh, libertarian ideas. And how would you say you practice that 
as a matter of your daily routine in life. Oh, that's that's the hard part, right? Is it is taking these kinds of principles and making them work in a in a human world? Um, I don't know. I would have to give that some thought. Okay, well, we'll see if we can circle back to that one. And I, I mean, this might get us going there too, because I, I'm one of these godless atheist libertarians. No gods, know? no masters. No god, exactly. No gods, no kings. However you want to phrase it, uh, I don't like the idea of any kind of great patriarch, uh, either here on earth, here on earth, or in the heavens. Uh, defining me or telling me what to do. I'm also sort of an existentialist in that sense. I I would kind of resent the idea of God existing because that means that, you know, he's already has some purpose or meaning in mind for me and I don't get to choose that on my own and I just sort of resent not having the choice. Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, anything you say uh, as a Quaker in terms of what that constitutes does not speak for probably most other Quakers. Um, and uh, there are atheist Quakers out there. How does that work? Then? I, it's a tell, very, tell it's me. a very good question. I, <laughs> I don't really know. But the fact is that uh, what you get – like just like there are uh, cultural Jews or, or people who are culturally a part of a faith tradition, it doesn't necessarily mean that they – abide by all of the tenets. They don't necessarily view themselves as uh, a part of uh, this particular kind of relationship with God, but they observe custom. Mm -hmm. uh, they like the community. They appreciate um, what it brings to them spiritually in a way without actually buying into a lot of the dogma. And I will say this, Friends has very little in the way of dogma to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. I now I imagine there's sort of a backbone that maybe most people share from from the Bible, you know, the the basics of the story, let's say, the the gist of it. But within that, it's it seems like there's a huge amount of fluidity. I mean, if you're saying there are even, you know, as far as their beliefs are concerned, there are atheists uh in the in the friends. Um it seems like there might not be any real <laughs> limits that anybody cares to place on, on who's a Quaker and who's not anymore. It's just a matter of of personal self-definition. I mean, in a sense, I wonder, does that mean the antinomians have won and nobody really recognized it? It also seems to me that there are a lot of communitarian elements to Quakerism. So uh, Historically, I think that's more true uh, than, it, than it may may be today. Okay. So yeah, you know, Brinton here throughout the book uh, continually makes the point that that Quakers have self-consciously built their movement around creating a, a healthful, involved, connected community at the same time that they're building individuals connected more closely to God and that that is – they are of equal weight at least in, in his portrayal. Again, I don't know if this book is a good – what, 60 years old in its original – printing maybe more by now. Um, and you know, he seems to have weighted those things equally, the individual quest and the, the quest for community. So there, there was at, at one point – and again, I, it, we need to make it clear. I'm not an expert in any of this. But in, in terms of the readings that I've done and um, uh, stories I've heard from people who know a lot more, there was a, a time when Qua the Quaker community 
functioned as a mutual aid society in a very substantial real sense. That That is, if uh, a member of your meeting, which is like a member of your church, that is, you have signed up to be a member and you are in good standing, that sort of thing, if uh, that person owed debts, ultimately those debts would fall to the meeting. So there was in the sense that you are sort of in everybody's business uh, and they're in your business. Um, it makes for good business in a sense because it, uh, you know, you, it's an insurance policy for people who might wish to contract with someone who is a Quaker. And people say Quakers came to the came to America to do good, and they did very well indeed. <laughs> that's, a, that's a popular uh, phrase about Quakers, and what they mean is that they became uh, fairly well-regarded business people, scrupulously honest, um, which. As you were talking about my day-to-day -day existence, I try to be as honest with everyone as I possibly can. Sometimes that doesn't work out in the short run uh, very well. Uh, but the idea is that uh, these were people, at least in the early part of, Ameri of, of the Americas, uh, Quakers were people you wanted to deal with on a business basis, scrupulously honest. Um, rarely haggled over things like prices. The price was the price. And um, I'd love to know, but it seems like that may have played a, a big role in sort of setting business culture in the United States. Hmm. Now, I, w I wonder, can you take us through um, maybe a bit of the history of how a meeting looked and, you know, in its early days and then what it looks like today? Uh, you know, I, I have the the basic understanding of it. I wonder if you know of any substantial changes. Um, I will say that I think uh, Quaker meetings today, uh, and again, can't speak for probably even half of Quakers, but of the meetings that I've attended regularly for uh, any length of time, mostly in Louisville, Kentucky, and Washington, D.C., and then when I would go out of town, I would visit meetings and. Other cities like uh, you know, I visit one in Lexington, Kentucky. I went went to one in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, a few years ago. But uh, the old school meeting was it was insular in a way, in that you were ultimately responsible for the other members of your meeting, and by virtue of that fact, it became a pretty substantial process to become a member of a meeting. And everybody in that meeting had responsibilities to everybody else uh, within committees to make decisions on behalf of a meeting. Unanimity is a really high value. That is, if uh, the sense of the committee is that this action ought to be taken, uh, Quakers might defer a decision if they couldn't get to a very high degree of agreement on something. Yeah, that was another thing I found very interesting in the book, his discussion about how even if there's a substantial minority of, of you know, different opinion, that the majority would have to work diligently to, to bring them over to the other side before any kind of decision would be made. So for example, with, with uh, the Quaker church condemning slavery in 1776, that, that decision took a good 40 years to, to really arrive at. 
And if anybody's seen the uh, the movie Amazing Grace, that is that's an important part of that. That the story that tells about William Wilberforce is a really important part of that story. Now, I I suspect that all told, probably the most significant changes to the way a meeting actually takes place is that everyone can participate now without reference to race or or uh, gender. Sure. And Absolutely. It used to be the case, at least in in the earliest days, that only men could speak at a meeting. What what? I'm I grew up Catholic, which is you know extraordinarily regimented. Uh, regiment. Yes, yes. Everything is planned out ahead of time. The for, answers for to all of your questions about the faith were written down. Yeah, you have all your moves years ago. All your moves set up, and you do it at the right time, and then you're fine. You don't need to know what any of it means. You just do the th- the right things at the right time and say all your stuff. Uh, but Quaker meetings are extraordinarily different. How how do they actually take place? Uh, well, it, it depends. Again, can't speak for everybody. Uh, but there are what are known as programmed meetings and unprogrammed meetings. Um, and uh, I'm not sure of a lot of the uh, particular details uh, of the differences because I've only attended un- unprogrammed meetings. Generally, you settle in at, at some time period. A Quaker church will uh, – a meeting house uh, for those in the know. Uh, it, it's not going to look necessarily like any other church you've been in because quite often the pews will face each other and they'll be wrapped around a room or they'll face in odd directions in an orderly way. But they, the focal point of the room is hard to discern. It's hard to discern where uh, – what would constitute a pulpit if there were one in the room and quite often there's, there isn't. Uh, and that's because there's not a preacher who's going to be telling you uh, how you ought to be interpreting the Bible, how you ought to be thinking about your relationship to God. And instead, uh, you sit essentially for an hour in silence – until someone is moved to speak. And that person could be uh, the idea is that the spirit moves them to speak. Um, and over a certain period of time, someone may stand and talk about an experience they had recently or talk about a concern that they have. And everyone else will sit and try to take that information in or sort of just let it wash over them. And inevitably, that does have an impact about of how your practice, of how your uh, meditation goes forward uh, over the course of uh, an hour or so. My favorite stories about Quakers usually involve them being naked somehow. Uh, so in Puritan Massachusetts, Quakers would famously protest the uh, the congregational elites by parading naked up and down the aisleways of their church services at the congregational churches. Uh, and they would get kicked out of the colony and then they would come back and they would do the same thing and get kicked out of the colony and they would keep coming back. Um, but now I imagine that you have some stories too, some some entertaining stories about Quakers. And I'm wondering, for example, the Larry David, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Seinfeld kind of stuff, like do people take advantage of the fact that anyone can stand up and speak? Oh my, yes. Tell me, please. Well, I don't want to go into any particular <laughs> details about about people or uh, no, 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 
you know, specific meetings. But there are some people who uh, enjoy the fact that they do have an audience. Uh, at least in my time at uh, the Friends Meeting of Washington, attending there, there were several meetings. That's that is to say, like you would have different services or mass times and things like that. There was a nine a.m. meeting, ten thirty meeting, eleven a.m. meeting, at in different sections of this and uh, at the Friends Meeting of Washington, which I would encourage anyone to visit. By the way, uh, it's a beautiful space, and I got married there. Um, but yeah, there are people who somehow the spirit moves them like clockwork every week to say something. And uh, it is an opportunity to cultivate uh, compassion and tolerance. Oh, see, I like that. That's that's a very artful change in what you would expect somebody to say about that situation. Uh, it would certainly annoy me a lot. <laughs> but oh, I I'm not saying it doesn't. <laughs> I'm just saying that it is an, the opportunity. It is an opportunity. It's right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Now, it should also – I guess I should note that this is technically discouraged, right, to take advantage of, of the opportunity to stand in it. Like this is something that, that you should take very seriously uh -huh. and not uh, just use it as, as a chance to speak. I think that's right. And uh, on the whole, that's probably how people use it, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, absolutely. OK. So now I'm, I'm also wondering what role – religion and Quakerism plays in your life right now, like as we speak, um, how is it impacting your life? And I mean, you, since you brought up your wedding uh, here in D.C. at the Quaker meeting, which I understand uh, the Free Thoughts host Aaron Powell, libertarianism.org zone, was at your wedding, um, as were a couple other of our colleagues here at Cato. What is a Quaker wedding like? A Quaker wedding like is as is it's very Catholic in a sense. Uh, if you attend a Catholic wedding, you get the mass. Uh, a Quaker wedding ceremony is essentially a meeting with a with a special concern or with a special focus. And so, when when Quakers get married, they have a marriage certificate that sits somewhere in the room. Um, you're marrying each other. There is no intermediary. There is no preacher that you stand before. The two of you uh, enter the room, sit, and at some point during that meeting, and anybody can say anything again. This isn't uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. It's just like a regular meeting in the sense that if you feel moved, you stand and talk. Uh, we had some uh, some of our friends and people who attended the meeting with us who would do that or did do that. And then at some point we stood and addressed each other and read the words of the certificate. This is a very sort of formal thing. It is a, a very it is contractual in a in a, in a more than symbolic way because you are the two of you are signing this document that says this is essentially my a pledge to you forever. And then at the end of the uh, meeting, everyone in the room also signs it because they're witnesses to it. And they are, in a sense, your community that is holding you to that. Do you find that that 
I don't mean to get too personal, but do you find that that weighs on you, like that consideration that this is an agreement that you've made publicly uh, with these people who are, you know, actually connected to you in a spiritual community too? Uh, I don't. I don't think it would any more than uh, any other two people getting married. The, the the I think the most important distinction to make as a religious matter is that you are marrying each other. Uh, it is there is no preacher. There's nothing. You've decided what that is going to mean. Your union is not part of some other institutional arrangement. That's right. You I you see. are the ones who decide what that means. And now another thing that um, the Brinton book here mentions is that. <laughs> Back in the 50s at least, Quakers still considered it very important to raise their children within the faith community uh, and sort of prepare them for taking up the responsibilities of a Quakerly life, you know, which involves a lot of responsibility. Uh, it, it's, it's a lot of work to establish your own personal connection to God and not just be, be sort of fed the information from above. Right. So uh, – you have two very, very young kids now, too young to, to attend meetings, um, although uh, it was interesting to read that people do bring their babies and it's considered a sort of blessing for the day to have, to have uh, newborns in the meetings. Um, but yeah, Quakers take you know, child education in the church very seriously and children are supposed to be included in meetings and supervised in their development by members of the community and – I'm wondering, do you uh, do you plan on raising your children Quaker or sort of letting them come into it like you did? I don't know. Okay, huh? I, I think uh, to the extent that we do that, Quakers are not evangelical. Again, not speaking for everybody or even half of the of the group, uh, Quakers view their lives as the thing. That is, if you may not ever read a Bible. But you may observe me living my life. And so that to me, that task, the task to me is to make it worth – make – live a life that is worth emulating. Mm -hmm. And that's of course – that's a that's a huge challenge all the time, constantly, every day. Uh, so for our children, we will we'll take them to the – we'll take them to meetings. Um, we have and – I can't. I don't get to tell them what to do. <laughs> okay. Now, I, I've often thought, uh, especially during the course of writing certain episodes for this show, uh, I've often had that the consideration that um, my one wish for modern libertarians might be to recover a bit of our ranter and antinomian and Quaker roots from the days of the English Revolution. Uh, to close us off here, how do you think a bit of Quakerism could add to the average libertarian's life and to the movement at large? I I think what you can do uh, to the extent that you have a community, to the extent that, you, that that community is holding everyone else in that community accountable to a, a standard of uh, honesty and uh, to live your lives in accordance with uh, shared values, uh, state you know explicit shared values, and to the extent you're doing that, it's it is sort that is sort of a meeting in a way, um, and and to to the extent that you know these are your friends, uh, it should be easier. It might be harder, 
but it should be easier to be able to confront them and challenge them when they're not living the way that uh, they explicitly say that they ought to be. Caleb Brown is Director of Multimedia at the Cato Institute, where he is, of course, host of the wonderful Cato Daily Podcast. Our greatest thanks go out to him again for joining us on what happens to be our 100th episode. Our deepest thanks also go out to all of you, Liberty Chroniclers, for helping us get so far and for being such a great part of it all the way through. Let that inner light keep on shining. Thanks for listening. Liberty Chronicles is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Liberty Chronicles, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.